Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, this is the second episode that we're releasing for The Vault today. In this episode, we chat it with Schroeder's own Marshall Elliott about his time being a captain in the British Army. Enjoy. Okay, welcome to today's episode. Uh, we're very pleased to have with us today uh, Marshall Elliott. Now, Marshall works on our operational excellence team, um, but he's also worked um, in the British Army before joining here at Schroeder's. Uh, Marshall, maybe uh, you could introduce what you did um, in the Army before joining Schroeder's. Sure, thanks for having me. Uh, as I say, my name is Marshall Elliott. I worked in the British Army for 10 years before coming to Schroeder's. Uh, I did a whole variety of roles there. Uh, I started as a medical planner and then in later years was an intelligence officer. Excellent. Um, as you've been inside both investment management and, and another field where decision-making is critical, can you give us some ideas, some similarities and differences that you've seen between the two organizations? Yeah, I think actually there's surprisingly similar ways of thinking in, in some regards. Obviously, the context of what you're doing is quite different, but if I uh, can make a comparison, I suppose, between one of the roles I've previously did as an intelligence officer and that of an investment analyst here, actually what you're doing really is going out and finding as much information as possible and turning that into some kind of end product which allows someone else to make a decision. In, in my case, in that instance, obviously, uh, an army commander in an in this building, obviously, a fund manager. But uh, that kind of ultimate responsibility belongs to someone who isn't necessarily collecting that information in the first instance is, is fairly similar in many ways. Excellent. Um, I guess you know, the, the world of investments is incredibly uncertain. And when we make decisions in investments, it's, uh, it's with a degree of uncertainty. Um, I guess when you're working in the army or the military, um, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. So how does the army deal with uncertainty in decision-making? I think there's probably a couple of main things to pull out here. One is that there is actually a very formalized way of coming up with plans within the military. So we have a uh, the formal estimate, which is seven broad questions that you go through to come up with a plan. So it gives you a, a very good framework to help your, your thinking and then decision making rather than just relying on what's in your head. And the second part is around training. So the, the military spends an enormous amount of time training people and putting them through really challenging and um, sort of example environments so that when they then get into proper operations, they feel like they've done similar things and are able to make decisions um, with some context. So that's actually very interesting to us because um, as part of our process, we we have a, a checklist which also incorporates uh, seven questions. So I'm a little bit curious uh, in trying to understand where does why why seven is the right number, um, and and if you could give us uh, some examples of 
one of those questions and how do you think about it? Yeah, sure. So where seven questions came from, I'm not actually certain. There used to be a five-question estimate, so perhaps that one didn't have enough detail. Um, seven questions certainly predated my own service. and But within those seven questions, you actually have quite a few sub-questions. So they're really sort of seven broad questions to, to consider. Uh, so the first one, as an example, is what's the current situation and how does this affect me? So during that, you're looking at everything from the sort of macro, economic, political factors in an operational environment, particularly on the sort of large-scale deployments here, um, right through to what, what's your adversaries doing, what's the weather doing, and you're looking at both what's what's happening, but then also the second and third order effect of those things. So it's kind of this what's happening and so what in terms of our own planning. So um, that's very appealing to us because n none of the questions that we are trying to answer uh, when we're thinking about any specific investment case are meant to um, deny or, or recommend any specific action. We are just trying to put ourselves in the mindset to answer some difficult situations, which maybe um, we might avoid otherwise. So I'll give you an example. We tend to think about, um, because of the kind of things that we looked at, which are value related and turnaround in nature. So these are companies that are going through uh, a tough phase uh, in their in their, in their their lives. Um, we try to understand whether or not a company is facing a structural decline. Uh, and I personally think that that's one of the most difficult things to do because there are many variables. Retail is brick and mortar retail. Um, dead and it's all going to be digital going forward, very difficult to answer. But that's exactly the purpose of the question, trying to put yourself in that specific mindset. And I think that that's, that's where it becomes very, very, very useful. Um, and then um, the, the, the other point that I think was very interesting from what you just said uh, has to do with second and third degree level of thinking. There is a very uh, well-known market commentator and investor, Howard Marks, who wrote a book called The Most Important Thing, where he actually makes the point about third, uh, uh, the difference between investors that have a first level of thinking, which is relates to the uh, scenario where a company profit warns and then people react immediately to that uh, versus people that might have a, a second level of thinking, which is, well, yeah, those results of, those of that specific company were not that great, but actually they were not that bad either. And then they kind of make decisions in that context. So maybe if you could elaborate more, elaborate more on how the military prepare you on 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 second level on third level degree thinking yeah so i think it's done in a variety of ways certainly when you're looking at an adversary you might be thinking what are they doing right now but then also what are they likely to be doing in the future and and what are the potential um sort of options that they may be be facing but also why are they doing it and what's their long longer term effect and how do we counter that rather than necessarily what's just happening in in front of our eyes at the moment and and do you formalize that with things like game theory at all uh probably not formally but i think there's there's a loose understanding of that sort of thing and uh probably informally yes can I, can I just come back? Um, you were talking before about the training exercises that you did. Um, have you got any examples of how that worked or um, was there something which particularly stuck with you, um, which you've taken away from that in terms yeah, of decision sure. making? Um, so the training generally is based around things, uh, 
common tactics and procedures to make sure that everyone's very slick at doing the sort of thing that you'd expect to do anywhere. And then we'll be fine-tuned based on the lessons that have been learned elsewhere. I think one of the things that uh, is, has stuck with me and, and is useful in day-to-day life now is the kind of ability to pull yourself away. So I remember even at Sandhurst and in the early days of training, the staff shouting at us, you know, why are you, when you're in a command appointment, firing your rifle? Actually, if you're looking down your sights, you haven't really got the context of what's going on around you. So when you're in charge and you're having to make decisions, really, you don't want to be getting too much in the detail. You want to be taking a step back and actually assimilating what's happening around you and really get that context. And I think sometimes you, you do see people being sucked into the, what feels like urgent and important on a day. And um, and actually, th- th- there's there's a lot of benefit from sometimes taking a pause and a step back and, and seeing what's happening. Yeah, that, that sounds very, very interesting. And actually, when, when you guys are preparing for a mission, um, how do you approach the plans from different angles? Do you use a multidisciplinary um, a team approach or or how do you kind of cross-check that you have covered all, all the different variables? Yeah, so I think there's probably a few things here. Uh, firstly, as part of the seven questions, you have to come up with a number of courses of action which will be based on uh, a variety of things. There is very much that multidisciplinary team. So, particularly in the larger headquarters, you'll find there'll be a number of staff from different fields of expertise. For example, you might have an engineering officer there and someone from logistics. And if you think about um, sort of intelligence and in, in the work I did there, you'd have even specialization within that. So, you'd have fusion of products coming in from both human intelligence, imagery analysts, um, the, the signal intelligence world. In, and each of those are adding their own element and then putting that all together and that the sum of the parts is giving that real insight and depth that the commander needs to make a really good decision. So in the conversations that we've had before, um, you, 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 you have mentioned uh, the use of red teaming as, as part of your process and the preparation. And we found that very interesting because actually uh, a few years ago, we tried to incorporate red teaming in our uh, thinking process. And it was difficult f- in, in, in our team. And there was this one case where, um, someone had done an analysis on a specific company and had come up with a recommendation and someone else tried to red team that person's opinion or not that person's, um, investment case. And, and he couldn't, he couldn't do it because he agreed with everything that he had read from, from his, uh, colleague. Um, so how, how do you go about red teaming? How do you choose the person that's going to red team and what goes into that process? Mm, I think it's, it is super important to make sure that whoever is red teaming is supported in their challenge. I think if you, if you feel like you have to comply with the known view of the team, then as you say, it can be quite difficult if someone, particularly if it's your own boss that you're challenging their thinking. Um, so you really have to have that support that whatever you say is is for a good reason. Uh, in terms of who used to do it within the military context, tends to be the sort of intelligence team because normally the red teaming aspect is coming from the perspective of what would the enemy do and, and that... Um, group of experts, I suppose, would be best placed to understand what the common tactics and doctrine of an enemy might be, uh, what their current situation is, and therefore able to come in the headquarters and say, this is what I'm going to 
do in the next 24 hours as this enemy force or if if you are going to act in this way uh, as the friendly force this is my likely reaction to that and just challenge all of the assumptions that were made by the original planning team um i think sometimes they're almost um purposefully kept away from the detail of the planning when it's being built also to help them to stop sympathizing too much with that plan mm. so maybe that's something that would be um a benefit here if if actually the person challenging it maybe hadn't read the case for as as deeply so that they were able to better um come at it as a sort of a, a fresh set of eyes i suppose so um we've obviously talked at a kind of higher level and macro level in terms of how decision making's done um, within the army but uh, i think it's the boxer mike tyson who always had the saying you know everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face um, and I'm sure the army has a more eloquent way of, of saying that. But um, what happens when on the ground things change? How how does the plan get put into practice um, when the environment's changing at all points? Yeah, a very similar phrase actually, which is no plan survives first contact with enemy. I'm not sure it's any more eloquent, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's the, the same version of, of a different thing, I suppose. And and it is absolutely the case, dis, despite how long you spend planning and how deeply you think about. It, almost always something will happen that you didn't expect. I, I think where the military has been quite good at this in um, it, uh, historically is that during that planning process, everyone's briefed into it at, uh, to a good level of depth. And so everyone at all levels understands why you're doing something rather than just how you're doing it. And therefore, when things go awry on the field, people are able to adapt very quickly. And this sort of concept of mission command, so delegating responsibility for how things get done to the lowest possible level means that people can be really adaptive very quickly without having to go up and down a sort of long hierarchy of decision-making each time they need to change their mind. So one of the things that we also talked before is when we when we um, started uh, talking about the, the podcast and the interview um, was the um thinking in terms of probabilities in decision making and how the military was approaching um that kind of um thought process and at the end of the day investing uh has to do a lot with uh probabilities and probabilistic thinking and so i i, I wonder and I, I wanted to ask you how much um how much in the in the in the way the the army thinks um in probabilities if they do, how much uh, differentiation is there between, or acknowledgement is there between skill and luck? Okay, probably a couple of things again to pull out there. I think so. Do they think in probabilities? I, yes, generally we'd be slightly less quantitative than it is perhaps in this industry, but there's definitely a thought around. Um, sort of frequency and impact of, of potential options. And so when you're coming up with a plan, you look at what's the most likely thing to happen. And particularly this is sort of focused around what's the enemy most likely to do, but then also what's the most dangerous thing they could do. So when you're coming up with a plan, you have to consider that, even if it's extremely unlikely because it's not in their normal sort of way that they would operate, it's not in their doctrinal tactics, it, there's still a theoretical possibility that they could do this this particular thing and so you have to plan against that it just means that again you're forcing yourself to think and put some risk mitigation in place for not just what you think is going to happen but also what's the worst possible thing that could happen so it's almost i suppose some equivalency to hedging um, do you have any specific example in mind where that applies so i think if we look at uh, my time in afghanistan there was over time we became 
quite aware of how the Taliban operated generally. And you'd see themes of even things like time of day that they'd operate. So normally they would choose to attack in either dusk or dawn using cover of darkness to either infill or exfill from a particular contact. And so it's fairly unlikely you're going to end up in a full-on firefight in the middle of the day, which meant when you're planning operations, you could use that to your advantage because you think, let's move things during the middle of the day and let's be very careful about what we're doing around dusk and dawn. But you still had to consider actually what's the worst case that could happen here, that something could happen in the middle of the day. So it meant that actually we uh, were able to use that as, as a way to sort of force our thinking to make sure we would consider everything. Um, the, the other thing that um, we kind of uh, think about is this difference between uh, magnitude and frequency. So magnitude um, frequency uh, tends to deal with the consistency of your gains or losses uh, in terms of monetary gains or losses. And frequency could be uh, a one-off where you are making a lot of money in one day or you're losing a lot of money in one day. And of course, as investors, as bad as that can be, just at the end of the day, you're dealing with with uh, an outcome, which is a, a, a monetary outcome. But in the military, uh, f frequency and magnitude um, can have a very different um, uh, context, especially when you are in combat situations. So how, how does the military deal with the difference between magnitude and frequency? And uh, do you even think about that? Yeah, it's probably, again, it's probably the... <laughs> The points are sort of alluding to just now around that sort of most likely and and most dangerous and um, like I say something might be extremely unlikely to happen, but if it would have an enormous impact if it did happen, you need to still have some mitigation in place for that. Yeah, one thing we do on the team um, is go back and look at our past decisions and and perform after action reviews. Um, that that's an idea taken from the military. So. Could you talk a little bit about how uh, you go back and look at past decisions when you're in in the army? Yes, yeah, so any exercise or operation will have a formal um, review afterwards. Where I, again, the value of it is, is always when people are, can be as honest and open as possible and say what genuinely did or didn't go well, and use that to try and learn for the next time. And I think historically, particularly tactically, the army's been quite good at that. Um, don't know whether we've been quite as good at learning some of our sort of strategic mistakes, but that's perhaps a, another conversation. Um, was there any case in the past where um, you guys made a decision that you thought that had been a good decision, but actually the outcome was unfavorable? Yes. So I had an example actually from, again, my time in Afghanistan where I was there as a medical planner and was responsible for coming up with the uh, medical support for large operations. And we had a, a battle group operation, so it's about 700 people going into a whole new area um, to try and, and gain a foothold there. And it was quite high risk, so we decided to basically push as many of the medical assets we had as far forward as possible to give those guys the ground, the, um, the support they might need, uh, which meant that the rear base where the headquarters was based out of was then fairly lightly um, supported by, by medical assets but was in a relatively safe location. So that was, was deemed appropriate. What actually happened during the operation was there were very few um, of our own casualties during it. Um, but actually what happened was we had an entire carload of local civilians which turned up to this base and uh, who had been in a road traffic accident. So it was, it was nothing to do with any sort of conflict um, injuries. 
but all needed pretty serious medical assistance. And actually, all we had was, was one medic left. So that person was then uh, under you know serious pressure to try and treat four people at the same time with a bit of help from a few people on ha- uh, around. And so you could say, looking at it really objectively, that the decision, although certainly the outcome was suboptimal because we didn't have the right treatment for the for the people who needed it at the time. But actually, the decision was based on the risk that was perceived during the planning. And actually, if that same operation had happened, you know, another 50 times, how many times would someone have been injured on the ground versus a car full of people turning up to the base? You would probably still make that same decision again. So actually, I think it was the right decision, despite obviously a not ideal outcome. Okay, I think that's the bulk of our questions on on decision making. Um, but we know the kind of importance of having a good ending. Um Juan, shall I, shall I tell the story? Um, yeah, yeah, okay, go for it. Okay, so uh, we, we had a, a similar sort of um, interview to the to this with um, Annie Duke. Now, Annie Duke's a poker player, um, and she's been on a, a number of different podcasts. Um, and this was an interview which we've written up for for our website. Um, but Juan didn't want to leave the uh, the conversation on a low note. Um, he he wanted to leave Annie with something. So. Uh, after she had answered all our questions, he offered an anecdote. Now, the thing about Juan, Juan is a massive fan of Roger Federer, to the extent where we only think he joined finance uh, because he heard the Fed talking about it all the time. And uh, <laughs> and so he wants to tell a story about Roger Federer. It was a very nice story. It was a story about skill and luck. It was um, a very good story. It was a wonderful story. Um, but the problem was, once he had told his story, the reaction from the other end of the line was simply, mm-hmm, yeah. Okay, bye-bye. And that kind of left a little sour note. So we, we want to make sure we, we have a good ending. So we've got a question for you. Um, have you made or observed very, very bad decisions? Uh, I have one which is reasonably amusing. Um, it's perhaps a, a, a cheap uh, shot at our at our cousins across the pond, but uh, the British Army is well known for that, so mm. I'll undunge myself. Uh, during one particular operation, we got a, a plan through from a, a US Navy SEAL team who was going to be deploying into our uh, the British-held area. And they had this raid planned in the middle of the night, and they sent through this plan saying, "We're going to we're going to drop ourselves here into this river, canoe down a couple of kilometres, and then stealthily go into this village." And uh, we read it, and <laughs> there was smiles from around the table as we realised that these guys had clearly not been and done their proper estimate because this one hundred metre wide river, uh, this was the middle of August, was in fact a riverbed of stones and so we were almost tempted to allow them to come and do it and just so we could laugh at them dropping these canoes out of their helicopter and see them then have to carry them 200 two kilometers down down a rocky riverbed did you let but, them do uh, that no we didn't yeah. in the end but um, certainly uh, i think it, you know it highlighted that you need to make sure that you're uh, you know doing your planning properly before you come up with your uh, your ideas <laughs> Um, and just one, we are avid readers and we are always interested in book recommendations. Is there you, is there any one book that you could recommend us? Uh, it's the one I've been reading recently, actually. Uh, it's a fairly new book. It's called Prisons of Geography. It's a book by Tim Marshall. Uh, don't just like it because it's got the same name as me. Mm. But uh, basically, it's a book about uh, why geography is so important to uh, sort of how the world exists at the moment, where borders are, why why country heads have acted in the way they have historically, and how much of that is sort of almost forced by 
the physical constraints of of their borders. It's uh, things that you may not have really ever considered before. It's quite um, eye opening in, in some ways. So uh, yeah, recommend that one. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been fantastic. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you very much.